How's everybody doing today? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So, whose fault is it that I'm late today? Let's think about it. Whose fault is it that I'm late today? Because I'm late every day. But it's usually my fault. But this time, it was not my fault. So, I came in here, into my office, about six or seven minutes ago. I would have been perfectly on time. And I sit down and I'm like, okay, today's a day. I'm going to start a minute early. How crazy would that be? A minute early. You guys would miss the first minute of the stream. But you want to know what sadly happened? Lexi came home from Target. Yes, Target, the gay one. And told me to hold Augustine for a few minutes while she did something. So... That is why I'm late. It wasn't my fault this time. I would have been early. So that's that's what it's about. So today I'm kind of going to go a bit off the cuff, um, talking a little bit about apologetics, um, conversion, the nature of both, um, talking more about why I just absolutely despise most modern apologetics and why a lot of it's just kind of worthless. We're going to be getting into some of those. Um, I'm going to be drawing from a bit of my background from uh, as a convert and as a convert who it was very difficult to convert. So going a little bit into that. But before we begin, um, do not forget Militant Thomas Mug. I remembered it this time. There's some coffee in there. Very good coffee. And uh, yes, very good coffee. So you can go to christianbwagner.com slash shop if you want the Militant Thomas mug. It really helps me out because obviously I get money from that, which helps me do more of these for you. And then also, if you go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, you can get some books that I reprint. There's some good ones um, specifically on this issue of apologetics. This, would, this is actually my, my most sold book. Let me see if I can actually find it. Oh, there it is. A Manual of Catholic Apologetics. This is really good uh, because this is basically going to uh, give you all of the facts that you need to know. So, really, the best place, and as much as Catholic Answers is just wonderful, and you, you can hear the irony in my voice. 
um, they're not going to be the place where you're going to be able to systematically get facts. So, where do you get facts? The Manual of Catholic Apologetics has all the facts you need. Um, the existence of God, the nature of God, God's work, God's word, the Son of God, and the kingdom of God. So, this is really going to give you everything you need. Um, it's in manual format. So, um, if you know what a theological manual is, it is very orderly. It's going to provide proofs in a very good way. It's going to respond to arguments very well. This isn't going to be no pop-level garbage book. You know the ones I'm talking about. The uh, uh, they're just they're they're written in such smooth words to try to make them enjoyable. And I, I'm not reading this book in order to enjoy it. I'm reading this book in order to learn something. So if you can take five pages to write what, I don't know, um, insert Catholic apologist's name takes to write 100 pages, then do five pages. Don't give me all the fluff. So that's what a manual of Catholic apologetics is really good. Trust me, reading that one book is better than reading uh, 20 modern apologetics books. Like you're, you're just wasting your time, honestly. Just read, just read that one 20 times and get, get, just get it, let it soak into your soul. And then I guess also another one. I didn't recognize this until this, and I did change the cover on this, so this is the wrong cover, because this cover is kind of ugly, not going to lie. So Richard Clark, Dialogue on the Existence of God. So you know, like a Platonic dialogue, this is a Platonic, Platonic dialogue, but basically for the existence of God. It is a very good book, um, it, because he's responding to... Uh, <clears throat> he's responding to a lot of the continental atheists of his time, so that's another one. And if you really, really love me and you want to get both of those books on PDF, then go to go to patreon.com slash militant Thomist and become a patron. Um, I don't set a minimum for for a reason because I know some people they really want to help out and maybe they can only give two bucks. Uh, there's plenty of people in that situation. So no matter how much or how little you can give, I will be happy and I will. Uh, value you the same as my glorious patron and you also get access to all of the other channels on the discord so i think that's all my spiels beforehand and i'm very sorry to tell you guys when it comes to my sparkling water for today it's Lacroix. it's gross i hate it but i need it's it's like i have a uh, like an existential need for for sparkling water i just love this stuff Oh, hello, Ivan. The gay one? Aren't they all gay? Which gay one? Which gay one did I talk about? I can't remember whether I was bullying the gays. Okay. I think that Koch's treatment on the papacy was rather surface level. I could be wrong, though. He seemed to be just stating his opinions and commenting too briefly on the objections that merit more. You need to switch out the LaCroix with a glass of wine or whiskey. Oh, Target. Yeah, yeah, all the companies are, all the companies are gay. Yeah, when it comes to Koch and his treatment on the papacy... Actually, I, I'll. Eh, I guess I could look at it now. 
that's going to be on the kingdom of God. Let me see nature, mark, and attributes of the church. Trying to remember. Let me see. Actually, I'll just I can cover that later. I need to get to it. Okay, reflections on apologetics. So oh, it's kind of hot in here. So last you you remember yesterday. So yesterday, uh, I had seen uh, Paleocrat, and he had done a stream with Reason and Theology, and the stream was on Catholic presuppositionalism. Oh, I, I keep getting, I keep getting, uh, I keep getting uh, confused. Sorry, sorry. I keep getting distracted by the chat. I, I wish there was a, oh, I know how to get rid of the chat. Boom. I'll make myself full screen. So I'm very easily distracted. But, so, Paleocrat, I saw that he had did something on Christian presuppositionalism. And as many of you know, I saw that, and I was very upset. I said, what the heck, how are Catholics accepting presuppositionalism? When I was a Protestant, uh, when I was Reformed, you had Cornelius Van Til, you had Greg Bonson, you had all of the... Um, presuppositionalist apologet, apolog, apologists. You had James White and uh, Cy Ten. Um, I can't even say his last name. Um, i trying to think of any others. But you had a bunch of these presuppositionalist guys. And now that I'm a Catholic, I am seeing this demon straight from hell coming back at me again. What in the world? But, so I, I, I tweeted about how much I hated presuppositionalism and then paleocrat happened to uh, see my tweet because he is a militant Thomist enjoyer thanks be to god so he saw my tweet and he also saw that i was going to be on discord vc so that's a reminder to join the discord he saw that i was going to be on discord vc and he decided to join so we we must have talked probably for about two or three hours last night. Um, Byzantine Scotus was there. Um, a few other people were there. But we were just we were just chit-chatting in the VC. And I have to I have to eat crow guys. I was wrong. I was very wrong. So uh, wasn't Saint Irenaeus a presuppositionalist? Possibly. But it just depends on how you're defining presuppositionalism. Because basically the insights that he was systematizing were the exact things uh, when it comes to my background of, of my conversion uh, to, to um, Catholicism from Protestantism. Sorry, my wife is distracting me. She's putting away clothes right over there, right in the closet, right next to my desk. Just distracting me, trying to think. So, with with my background, and you guys have probably at least heard one interview that I've given, so I'll just, just give, talk about it for a few minutes. I will just talk about it for a few minutes, get into a bit of, of my background for my conversion, because I think the things that Paleocrat were, was getting at 
fit perfectly well with my experience of how my conversion worked and a lot of my friends. So my background is I was a Protestant undergrad uh, studying theology. We were, we were big into the uh, classical reform thought, sort of reform scholastic movement. That was, that, that's what we, what we studied. We studied um, really the best um, defenders of the Protestant faith uh, that they had to offer. So like James White was big gay for, for me, at least um, he, he just, he definitely wasn't as good as the stuff I was reading every day. Definitely wasn't just watching the dividing line and then uh, being a reformed Baptist, which meant absolutely nothing. So that is, that is sort of the background I was in. And once the, the Roman question, the Roman question, once the Roman question uh, came before a few of our eyes and we were discussing this, we were really just going around in circles because we, we read Bellarmine. Um, I read uh, some of the other dialect Suarez and his work against um, King James. I read, um, what is his name? Um, can't remember, but really reading a lot of uh, classical Catholic responses to the Reformation. Oh, yeah. Here's another really good one for me. The Catholic Controversy by Francis, St. Francis de Sales. So reading all this stuff, stuffing our brains with information, reading the res the Reformed responses to the Catholic responses, then reading the Catholic responses to the Reformed responses to the Catholic responses to the Reformed responses. And it was just kind of going circles and circles and circles. Be like, okay, um, what do we think about transubstantiation? Okay, here are all of the objections that have been put forth by, by Protestants. Okay, here are all the Catholic responses. Here are all the Protestant counter-responses. Here are the Catholic counter-responses to that. Here are all the objections we can think to those responses. And then here are all the responses that other people give us to those responses when we talk to them. It was... <laughs> it was terrible really that's just that's just how it went there was really no uh, moral certitude to either side and that was and i just went really through a period of nihilism at, at that point is just like is there any way in which i will ever resolve these questions on this side of eternity is there any way that was it was very difficult for me is i just couldn't resolve these questions I would. I was obviously at that point defaulting to to Protestantism because I had not converted yet, but I couldn't resolve these questions. So, what what happened to us in our in our discussions about this? So, sorry, she's distracting me again. You're getting your slippers. Okay, get your slippers and get out of here. <laughs> so. What, how did we really resolve this when we were all discussing this? Well, I had one of, one of our, the friends in our group who were thinking about this. He basically said, you know, really what's important is that we just need to think about prolegomena. We need to think about how the, we need to think about the terms, really the terms of agreement and the terms of argument because if we never think about the way in which theological questions are resolved the way in which um the sources of argument 
for theological questions, then we're going to get nowhere. For example, if you're an independent fundamentalist Baptist and and you do not give a crap about uh, church history, then if I make arguments like, okay, the uh, this is the, I don't know, the monoepiscopacy in the first and second century, they're going to say, who cares? I don't care about church history. Show it in my Bible. Show it in my Bible. I don't care about church history. So you need, I needed, and we needed, these discussions to happen around prolegomena. How we were going to, how we are going to, um, sorry, people are, people are yelling at each other in the chat right now. Okay, I will, I will continue. I will look at that later. So, how are we to justify our theological propositions that we are arguing about currently? Because it really seemed like both sides had a very good case. Because being perfectly honest, the reform side, they, they knew their stuff. They, a lot of them, like Peter Martyr Vermigli, he was a Catholic theologian. Um, he was a, an Augustinian friar who had a very important position teaching St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa. So he was very learned. He was saying some very good things. He was saying some things, and he had very good points against a lot of the Roman Catholic beliefs. And on the other hand, you had the terror of Protestants himself, St. Robert Bellarmine. You had the great converter of Geneva, St. Francis de Sales. And we were reading both of the sides. We were reading all of the responses to the responses, and we could really get nowhere. We, we, we could not get anywhere. So again and again and again, we just decided, okay, if we can just have this small sliver right there of discussion on the nature of authority, on the, on the nature of how we justify those certain ideas. And we had that discussion and it took forever. We discussed this for a very long time. Just this one doctrine, just that one. And then finally, finally, it kind of hit me. It kind of hit me. So I was thinking about magisterial Protestantism, because that's where I came from, is magisterial Protestantism, Anglo-Catholicism, kind of is the same idea when it comes to um, authority. But basically, the the bishops of the Church of England, you know, now by my bishops in the ACNA when I was in the ACNA, they would have a certain authority themselves is we weren't these Protestants. We, we were we were much cooler than, than the normal Protestants. We weren't these Protestants just randomly deciding me and my Bible under the tree. We believed in in authority. So we believed in um, certain judicial decisions that could be um, that could be given a certain judiciary magisterium. I guess you could say it in that way. So just as Calvin in Geneva had his presbyters, his council of presbyters who decided on certain questions, so did we have our college of bishops. And when our college of bishops made a certain decision, or really what, what most people looked at is when the college of bishops from the 17th century or the 16th century made a certain decision, 
then we had to follow that decision because they are uh, judicially superior to us. And in sacred scripture, it isn't a free-for-all. We recognize that it wasn't a free-for-all. But I recognized that that was an untenable position. And you want to know why? I was sitting down, um, chilling. And this is actually uh, different than my encounter with Newman when it came to church history. But I guess I can get into that a little bit later. I probably haven't really talked about this one in public much. But there, this was one of the big stages that really shook me up towards Catholicism. Where I began to recognize uh, that that my Protestant faith was just, sorry, I hit the mic, was just getting ripped out from under me. So I was sitting down uh, reading Richard Hooker, um, the the Reverend Richard Hooker, and his Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. So with the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, a lot of it is written in response to Cartwright, Thomas Cartwright, who was a Puritan. And Thomas Cartwright, his whole, basically think of him as a Puritan, like the the Church of England version of uh reformers like he was kind of the church of england version of calvin because with with the with the original reformers they broke off from the from the uh the latin church the western latin church really the 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 whole the whole uh catholic church they broke off from it and they'll say they were kicked out but uh that's what we do to heretics and with with thomas cartwright he wanted to break off from the Church of England because he was like, hey, you guys are teaching stuff against uh, sacred scripture and you guys need to repent. And uh, I know uh, that my Bible is more right than uh, you are. And do you want to know what Richard Hooker said? I, I will I will never forget it. You know what? I actually I this was so influential when I read this that I. In my article where I wrote um, about my conversion, I actually included this quote in the article. Okay, yeah, yeah, subscribe, get a free PDF, whatever. Um, Where is it? There it is. On October 22nd, 2021. This is what Richard Hooker wrote. And people were extremely upset that, um, that I had included this. In my in my letter about my conversion, but it really was um, striking what he wrote. So against against Cartwright, a Puritan, he wrote, "What success God may give unto any such kind of conference? So that would be like a conversation or disagreement or disputation. We cannot tell, but of this we are right sure that nature, Scripture, and experience itself." have all taught the world to seek for the ending of contentions. So how do we end contentions? We have disagreements of points of doctrine. How do we end these contentions? The ending of contentions by submitting itself unto some judicial and definitive sentence. So some judicial and definitive sentence. So what we have to do when it comes to the ending of controversies. So this was my question. This was my question. How was I supposed to end this controversy that I had on all of these points of my theology? And Richard Hooker told me that I needed to submit myself unto some judicial and definitive sentence. That is what I needed to do. So I was like, okay, 
I will submit myself to some judicial and definitive sentence. And let's see what he says further on. Whereunto neither part that contendeth may under any pretense or color refuse to stand. This must needs be effectual and strong. As for other means without this, they seldom prevail. That's true. They seldom prevail. He was explaining my exact experience when it came to not being able to answer this question. I would therefore know whether for the ending of these irksome strifes, wherein you and your followers do stand thusly, formally divided against the authorized guides of this church and the rest of the people subject under their charge, whether I say ye be content to refer your cause to any other higher judgment than your own, or else in intend to persist and proceed as ye have begun, till yourselves can be persuaded to condemn yourselves. If your determination be this, we can be but sorry that ye should deserve to be reckoned with such, of whom God himself pronounceth the way of peace they have not known. That was striking. That was striking. The ending of controversies, we go to the authorized guides of the church. That is what we do. And when we have lesser authorities who are disagreeing with each other, what do we do? What are you supposed to do? What was I supposed to do when I could not figure out these questions? Tell me what was I supposed to do. Tell me what Richard Hooker says to do. Tell me. What are we to do? Go to higher authorities. There is some judicial sentence. There is a judiciary body in order to bring forth these questions that I had. Well, you may say that the papists do not have valid authority. Well, perhaps. Perhaps that is true. But do your bishops have valid authority? Yes, they do. Okay. Okay. The bishops of the Church of England have valid authority. You can say that. You can say that. Okay. But tell me. Tell me real quick whether your bishops and your church is the same church or a different church than the medieval church. You would say same, unless you want to say different. Because if you say different, then we got you. We, we got them, boys, if they say different, because that has a whole host of problems. So the same. Okay. Okay. So would you say a council with even more bishops from even more countries would be more authoritative than your bishops? Let's say all of your bishops went to this council. All of your bishops went to it and then agreed upon the doctrines. Let's say, let's say, okay, I'll, I'll make it even more. Let's say all of the bishops of all of your country, all of the bishops of the Latin West, and even some Greek bishops showed up. Would that be more authoritative than your bishops? They would say, of course, unless you want to be an idiot, <laughs> then he would say no. But let's say you say, of course. Okay, now tell me about the Council of Florence real quick. Tell me about how much you obey and how many things your church has condemned that the Council of Florence taught. These, these medieval, even if there were local Western councils, they still have more authority than your Council of Bishops. 
So if I am to seek some judicial sentence where your bishops disagree with all of the other bishops of the Western Church, I am to seek a council where everybody's bishops are present. That is a more authoritative sentence. That is what I'm to seek. And, oh boy, did I seek it. That Once that realization came to my mind, that was, almost, that was the a priori prolegomena question that destroyed the entirety of the way in which I justified theological propositions. I recognized that there had been a judicial sentence that was against me. I recognized on the very principle of magisterial Protestantism, something I had, I had completely rejected, the evangelical Protestantism of my youth. I'd completely rejected it because I recognized that it was ahistorical. It could, it could not even hold a candle up to the history of the church. And it was um, irrational. It was unbiblical. There, there was no way about it. There was no way around. So I decided to be a cool, McCool magisterial Protestant. But there is such a fundamental incoherence in the system with how the medieval church worked. It is a fundamental and glaring incoherence that I didn't see. It needed to be pointed out to me. And thanks be to God for Richard Hooker for pointing it out to me. Who knew that that would be the guy who pointed it out to me? That I had a fundamental incoherence when it came to the accepting of authority. And you do you, and when you talk to me, do you want to say, well, you're against sacred scripture? Well, this this is what you say against people who say that exact same argument. You are being cartwright right now. Either be consistent and be cartwright, be a Puritan, be a dissenter, be a dissenter and be consistent, or be consistent the other way and join me in swimming the Tiber. There is no other way around it. There is no other way around it. And let me see, there's probably a billion. And um, when I was talking with Paleocrat last night, and after he got off the call, and he's in the, he's in the chat right now, after I got off the call with him, I began to think about, about this uh, long situation that I had and the absolute necessity to stick to prolegomena in a lot of these questions is you need to begin with the foundations of theology. Because let's take, for example, the conversation that I had with the other Paul. I don't know if he's in the chat right now. He usually is. The conversations on Roman Catholicism that I had with the other Paul is we argued back and forth, and then we came to this fundamental disagreement. I was saying one thing, he was saying the other thing. And we could just not see eye to eye. It was as if we were speaking a different language to one another. I could not see it from his point of view. He could not see it from my point of view. That's what was going on. We were, we were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Well, why? Why was it? Well, because there was some issue where we had not defined our terms. We had, there was some foundational issue, which we both were assuming our side was right. Where we had not defined our terms. We had not defined what we meant by faith. That was something which was hugely important, where if you defined faith like a Roman Catholic, 
his position would be stupid and impossible. That so that we just could I just was so disgusted by his position. I was like, it has to be wrong. I intuitively know that what you're saying uh, from my point of view is stupid from from the system that I have from the foundations that are built. I know it's stupid, but we are not talking about these uh, foundational issues of of argumentation before. And I think that is vital when you're when you're going to be talking to anybody, debating with anybody, is is when they put forward a dissenting opinion from your own, you need to kind of put yourself in their shoes and look, okay, where what is the premise from which they are basing? What is that hidden premise that they're using? Um, and then what is the hidden premise behind that? What is the hidden premise behind that? Because you, you really need to look at that, that chain of reasoning that they have engaged in and then cut it off at the root. Be like, okay, this, this is really the root of your problem. Because otherwise, it would be like if you had a sick man and they came to you and uh, let's say you're a doctor and a sick man came to you and he had a fever. And all you're going to do is just prescribe him some Tylenol to deal with his fever. Well, the sickness is actually like, I don't know, COVID. Let's say COVID, even though I think it's made up. Just kidding. I don't think it's made up. But let's say it's COVID. You just give him some Tylenol to deal with his fever. Is that going to do anything to actually help with the COVID? No, it's just going to mask the symptoms. So when you are talking with somebody about these issues and you aren't going back to say, okay, what is what, what is the root cause of this misunderstanding that you're having? Because you are corrupting what is true. You're corrupting the truth. What is that foundation for the misunderstanding you're having? If you do not go back to that with the discussion, go back to these issues of prolegomena, of first things, then what you're going to do is you're just going to be treating symptoms. You're not going to be finding the root of the errors and then rooting them out. This is what this is what was done in the encyclical Pascendi against modernism. Modern before people had been treating modernism as a bunch of uh, uh, disheveled propositions but when Pashendi was written Pashendi showed it in its coherence like okay this is the system which is being which is being put forward which is against the catholic faith these are the foundational beliefs and these are the false premises that they are working off of what we need to do is we need to destroy these premises before we even talk about the certain conclusions it is it is a priori to talk about these issues of prolog prolegomena and then when it comes to answering certain objections, like let's say they come to you and they have like, okay, um, I'm having some issues when it comes to, um, I don't know, the papacy. Uh, could you show me where the Bible teaches that? After you've dealt with all of these previous issues of the entire edifice they built on these false foundations, you can say, okay, we can, we can build back up now that we've talked about these, these foundational issues. And we can answer your questions about these issues that you may be having. That is completely fine. That is completely fine. But when it comes to these foundational issues, you have to engage the roots and not necessarily just the wicked fruit because the wicked fruit of doctrine is going to come from the wicked roots that are bad foundations of prolegomena. And that is something that you need to stick with. Okay, so I'm going to check the chat real quick. And then I have one more thing to say, but it's going to be a lot of thing to say.
As a former Anglican, do you have any insight on Robert Grotesque's authentic stance of the papacy? I have no idea. The problem is people conflate this term a lot, presuppositionalism. Epistemological reductio ad absurdum does not equal presuppositionalism. I yeah, that that's that's what I was thinking. Is there was there were some valid insights that I had with my discussion. Okay, a Christian B. Wagner, what's your response to the objection that if self-awareness and will are proportion to person, then the Trinity should be three wills and consciousnesses? Yeah. If self-awareness and will are a property of person, then there would be three wills and three self-consciousnesses. Correct. But will and self-awareness are something of nature. So that's not, um, it doesn't follow because that would be social Trinitarianism. Okay. Because awareness of oneself is awareness of the single hypostasis one is. So the Trinity's three subjects should give rise to three conscious selves. That doesn't necessarily follow. You're, you're acting like self-awareness is because you've just restated your, uh, your premise there. I, I would just utterly reject that awareness of oneself is a property of of um, hypostasis. I would deny that. Okay. Yeah, classical theist is right. Awareness sounds more like an intellectual quality that would be common to the three persons insofar as they are subjects of an intellectual nature as per Boethius' definition of person. And if you go to my website, I have a whole um, article just talking about the way in which Catholic theology, uh, because it's kind of funny that you ask that question, because of the way in which Catholic theology defines person and how uh, misconceptions, certain misconceptions about person have utterly um, destroyed Christology and Trinitarian theology with uh, blatant Nestorianism, or actually uh, it's more like blatant uh, monothelitism, and also um, with issues with tritheism. It all comes from a misunderstanding of what person means. Okay, I am. Couldn't one object that awareness to the unicity of one's hypostasis or subjecthood? So three hypostasis applies three awarenesses. No, that is, that is, that is just a property of nature. That's you. You're what, what's happening. What's happening here is the root issue um, of of the problem is that you're taking Jung and Freud's definition of person that 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 you have. And it's not your fault, but we are in this absolute sea of psychologism. That is the the sea in which we swim in. The water which we swim in is psychologism, and it's hard for a fish to see the water which he swims in. So we're in the sea of psychologism. So when we see three persons, 
one nature, we're thinking, okay, person, 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 person. How are we defining person? Okay, we're going to define person as a psychological self of self-awareness and intellection. Okay, okay, this makes sense. So we think about the Trinity, we're going to think about three uh, centers of self-consciousness or willing or awareness. No, that is not how the tradition has defined it. So if you, again, if you just go to my website and just read that blog post, it should clear up all of these issues because this is a very deadly error when it comes to the misdefinition, the uh, the wrong definition of person. It is a very deadly um, error. Okay. Interesting. We have classical theist and paleocrat in the in the comments. This is this is an interesting uh, comments. Um, let me see. I'm sorry. I'm still looking through. Still looking through. Uh, all of the. Yeah, Florence is the ultimate, most valid ecumenical council in the history of the church. That is, it is true. So why not submit to uh, the Greek bishops? Yeah, I'm not really, again, I don't have much, most of my experience has to do with uh, with um, being a Protestant. I don't have any experience with uh, being Eastern Orthodox. So honestly, I couldn't tell you. Uh, maybe Paleocrat would be able to help you out. He mentioned a few things last night about that. I am re I'm about to bully James White. You want to join? I wish I could. I need to um Yeah, but again, it, like all that I said, I don't know why people keep uh keep um keep put, saying my Thomism. I can't I can't like talk about issues of um of the I'll actually I'll get to this in a in a, in a minute. Okay. Give us your summary diagnosis of orthodox apologetic methods. <laughs> okay, so I will continue. I guess after that brief uh, checking of the chat. So, oh, the other Paul. I was just talking about you, the other Paul, like five minutes ago. You missed it. And I know this Lacroix is homosexual. Okay. So I, about, I want to say a year ago, so continuing, about, actually, probably less than that, but I did a major project researching the apologetic method of Tertullian. So Tertullian, in his um, Apologium and then in his other works, he did a lot of work against the pagans. That was Tertullian's big thing is he would take pagan objections and then he would answer them. And throughout reading a lot of Tertullian and then a lot of the other early apologists, I found out that they really had a method. So I wanted to kind of put forth this method. And I think, honestly, it makes sense with Thomistic metaphysics and um, also Thomistic, uh, the, the, the nature of the will in, in really all of scholastic thought but especially in the thought of St. Thomas and St. Augustine. So 
the way in which the early apologists, especially Tertullian, because that is who I researched most, what they would do is you would have an argument which would be leveled against the Catholic faith. So let's say um, I, br I brought up the example last night. Uh, you guys will love this. I brought up the example last night is let's say you have a, um, a raving feminist. And this raving feminist, which you see them, you see them a lot now, they're coming out of their their hellhole. The raving feminists just yeet right at the Catholic faith, and they say, "You hate women. You uh, you you really hate women. You're you're haters of women, and you're misogynistic. And you're sexist. The the Catholic faith, and you could just make this Christianity as a whole if you're if you're not Catholic. The Catholic faith hates women. And what Tertullian would do with that." is first thing he would do is he would he would take it and he would flip it on them he would take the objection he would flip it on them so he would take and then just go wham you he'd take their the the sword he threw at them and then he would catch it throw it back at them so in our example of the catholic faith hates women he would say well we're the ones that hate women well, actually, um, it's really you guys who hate women. Because, I mean, uh, you guys practice abortion. It's terrible for women. Contraception, how is, that, how is that good? You want to masculinize all women. How do you love femininity? And he would go down the line of all the ways in which, no, 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 that's actually you that are, that are falling to pray. He would take them, make them fall right on their own sword. And then triumphantly over them, what he would do next is he would say, actually, rather than hating women rather than um being rather than falling under this objection we are the only ones who don't fall under this objection we actually take the exact opposite view of what you're accusing us of if if you're going to give us an honest shake so we are we are women respecters over here boys so actually what we do in the catholic faith is we in consideration of true femininity exalt it the most in our focus on motherhood for example that that is in 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 uh in the fact that we focus very highly on a man's uh, duty to care for his wife and family. We actually the exact opposite follow natural law to such a T. We very closely follow natural law that we are the exact opposite of what you're accusing us of, and actually you are the full iteration of what we're of what you're accusing us of. That is kind of the two step um sort of mode of apologetics that Tertullian would do. An example. So during the time, um, let me think. He, I'm trying to think of what the best example would be. He, okay. There was the accusation, which was leveled against Christians, that they, um, trying to think what would be the best example. In his apologia, uh, let's use the uh, incest example. That I'm trying to think of the least crude example. It's either baby killing or incest. Would, would pick your poison when it comes to uh, what we were accused of back then. So they would accuse the Catholics of incest. They would say, "Well, you guys call each other brother and sister. You have the kiss of peace, and blah 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 blah." blah. And you would call husbands and wives would actually call each other brother and sister, and blah blah blah. 
So they would say, well, actually, you guys are you guys are very sexually immoral Christians. Um, this is this is what you guys are doing. You guys are super sexually immoral. And very, we're very scandalized by that. And then Tertullian said, you, you're, you're literally an idiot. <laughs> like, look in the mirror. When it comes to pagans, these are all the things that you are doing, which is sexually immoral. This is all of what you are doing. And here is actually our standards right here. Our standards are that of absolute purity. So you are accusing us of sexual immorality, but it's actually you who fall victim to that accusation which you are making. It is actually us which hold the standard with that goodness that you are recognizing. So what I think this um, can easily be reduced to, this patristic mode of apologetics, is we need to think about a little bit more clearly St. Thomas's concept of being and goodness. So St. Thomas will say that being, insofar as it is being, is good. And that really evil is just the privation of being. So there cannot be uh, some sort of pure evil that if it exists insofar as it has being, it is good. And that evil is just a corrupted good. So when you are thinking about those who are um, going against you in an apologetic situation, somebody is throwing out an objection against a Catholic faith. You know from, from the outset that you have the fullness of truth. So you know none of their objections are going to work. But what you also know is that they are recognizing something that is good. That's what they are recognizing. They are desiring something that's good. So when the, uh, let's take the example of the Protestant. When the Protestant comes up to you and says, well, you just stupid Catholics, you don't care about the Bible. Well, they are recognizing even in their even in their false premises that they are that they are giving against you even the false accusation i mean that they are giving against you they are recognizing something good they recognize that sacred scripture as revealed by god is something very important so there is still that grain of goodness that grain of being in everything in which they are going to accuse you of and this occurs with almost everything every single accusation if you think hard enough they are going to um, fall under that and what you need to do, and what what really happened to me in um, in my example, is you need to take that and you need to snap them right to right to consistency. Be like, okay, you really care about sacred scripture. Okay, that's great. Uh, that that is a really good thing. Okay, I want you to be consistent with this now. I want you to be consistent with this now. So obviously, on the premise, and I'm going to assume this, on the premise that sacred scripture is a uh, is a formal principle of preaching and of doctrine, can you, even in your theoretical appraisal of the infallibility of scripture, practically use sacred scripture infallibly? Can you practically use it in that way? And that's something which the other, the other Paul and I uh, discussed a bit, and something which was very influential for me reading St. John Henry Newman is you have this grain of goodness. Now, I want to call you to be consistent with that good principle in which you're basing something off of. And then it's also, if you think about it, connected to the nature of the will in St. Thomas. So what is, and really this goes back to St. Augustine, is what is a sin? What is an evil act? 
Well, a sin, an evil act, is choosing and loving the lesser good. That's what it is, choosing the lesser good. So there is still that um, grain of knowledge and grain of goodness. Or if, if it was pure evil, pure wickedness, it would be destroyed. But there is still that, even you see it in a lot of people's arguments, there, there's still that little grain of goodness. And if you just took that, just grabbed onto it and said, okay, be consistent with this little grain of goodness that you have right here. Because you're contradicting this little grain of goodness that you have on these 10 other points. So if you're consistent and just snap them back into consistency, then what you're really able to do is to be able to um, really destroy the evil from the good that's present there. So let's take, uh, for example, hmm, sodomites. So sodomites, why, why are they homosexual? Why are they gay? Why are sodomites gay? Why? Well, they'll give you plenty of reasons. One reason, it may be um, that they just like pleasure. Is there anything inherently wrong with pleasure? No, no. Well, do you like pleasure? Okay. Well, actually, that is that is a that is a certain good in which you are recognizing. That is a certain. Oh, Lexi came in again and distracted me. I was I was picking up steam. I was picking up steam right there. Okay, I guess I guess I will I will continue this in just one second. I need to look through the comments. I need to wait for Lexi to get out of here. I can't, I just can't have anybody in the room when I'm doing this. I don't know. I can't have anybody in the room while I'm doing this, or I inevitably get um. Yeah, every time you walk in the room, I'm distracted. Being and goodness are identical. Uh, they, uh, you can, you can make a, um, you can make a virtual distinction between them. So, I mean, if by identical you mean um, no real distinction, then yes, correct. But uh, being, um, uh, well, goodness is that aspect of of being as related to the um, to the appetites. That would be the definition of goodness. Have invite Michael Lofton and Taylor Marshall to the chat too. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Paleocrat, Elijah, the other Paul. Oh man. I know I'm really excited for your future streams, Paleocrat. I'm really excited. Because they seem they seem good. Um, we need to find a good time to do a stream another stream together. Bet. Okay. <laughs> By the way, de debunking. Use scripture infallibly. Hmm, yes, that thing that has happened a number of times that I can count on my hands. What are you talking about? Every time, like every time, there's an ecumenical council. Yeah, the the whole thing about there's only been like oh, it's talking about papal infallibility in particular. The whole thing about oh, there's always 
I wasn't talking to you, Christian. I know. I f- I figured that. I fi- <laughs> I I figured that we <laughs> that we hadn't had a stream together before. And yeah, okay. So use scripture infallibly. Hmm, yes, that thing that's happened a couple of times in count of my hands. Yeah, you that that's actually a popular myth when it comes to um, papal infallibility in particular. That it's only been used like two or three times. That, that's that's just wrong. But yeah, uh, every time every time any infallible uh, statement is made or definitive, I I guess I should have said uh, use scripture definitively. Um, because you yourself has said have said like I don't think there's anything um, I th- there's no definitive uh, or infallible way in which to show that uh, Nicene Trinitarianism is correct that the anti-trinitarians are necess- aren't necessarily uh, to be definitively judged against uh, there's no there's no instrument to do that or you said you wouldn't be opposed if uh, there was other books to the canon that you haven't considered or stuff like that. So I think that kind of exemplifies the point that I'm that I'm putting. But I'm glad you're being consistent. Okay, what is the best Thomistic apologetics work? Um, Rationibus Fide or Summa Contra Gentiles? Um, just just read Saint Thomas yourself. Um, but if you if you're more of a beginner, Rationibus Fide um, on the reasons of the faith. It's on Isidore.co. Uh, if you go if you scroll way down on my videos. I have a whole video just showing you everywhere you can find St. Thomas online. So I'm not going to show you again. Or Aquinas.cc. So Ratchoni Boost Fide if you're more of a beginner. I mean, if you're more advanced, uh, just go straight for Summa Contra Gentiles. Really good. But remember, St. Thomas is kind of doing that um, a posteriori thing right there um, when, when he when he does these things. Because St. Thomas does have this, interestingly enough, I guess I'll get back to... Um, I guess I'll get back to what I was saying. But interestingly enough, before I continue on the sodomite example, when it comes to St. Thomas's mode of theology, and really Aristotle um, in his ethics in general, you see that this is recognized, is when people are, when people have certain theological errors, and when uh, people have certain moral errors too. But let's stick with theological errors. People have certain theological errors. What they are doing is they are ter- taking a certain good thing in the Catholic system of theology, and they are um, over-exaggerating it, or they are under-exaggerating it. That, that, that's what they get. You either get a, um, a privation, or you get an over-exaggeration and in inclusion. You're either getting adding or taking away of a certain good thing that they are monkeying around with. So you see, for example, um, I was just reading this the other day. Uh, I was reading my Summa, and I was going back and reading the section, the treatise on on the Trinity again. And he was talking about the divine processions. What he was saying is that there's really a twofold error when it comes to the divine processions. You have Arianism. Arianism rightly recognizes that the begetting of the sun rightly recognizes it. But what do they do? They t- take begetting in a false sense. And the Sibelians, they are rightly recognizing the unity of God. But what is their error? They do not have real relations between the persons. This, the, these, these are the errors is you're going to have errors always that are, that are taking a portion of the truth and then corrupting it. 
and then still retaining um, some of some truth behind it. The the Aryans they're retaining the beginning of the sun, but they're, then they're corrupting it. The Sabellians they're retaining the unity of the Trinity, but then they're corrupting the plurality. So those those are the those are the things you need to consider. Saint Thomas, if once you start seeing this, he does this all the time when he's going against his theological opponents. He says, "Well, yeah, yeah, you got kind of got a point here, but here's where you're going wrong and corrupting that point, then being inconsistent with that point." That is that is what Saint Thomas does all the time. It's his bread and butter move uh, throughout his systematic and dogmatic works. Just bread and butter right there all the time. Okay, now let's. Go back to the sodomites. So why why are sodomites sodomites? Why are they gay? Why are they gay? What they'll say, they'll say, uh, well, it's because, uh, I don't know, it feels good. Feels good. Feels good to be gay. I don't know how, but uh, somehow they, they think so. Like, how could, okay, I won't, I won't even get into, get into detail. I don't know how you could look at a dude and say like, oh my gosh. The dude is so much, so much more beautiful than than a woman. I, I I don't get how people could do that, but that's besides the point about how weird gay people are. So, why are they gay? They say pleasure. Okay, so that principle in which you're choosing based off of is pleasure. You say, well, okay, pleasure in itself is is not an evil. It is something which is good, but. But you are actually seeking pleasure in the wrong way. If, and then St. Thomas does this when it comes to the beatitude of God. So if you are finding your beatitude in your final end, if you are finding your, your purpose, your meaning, your goodness, you're finding it in pleasure itself, it really, rec it really ruins pleasure. So with the beatitude of God, if you want to seek pleasure as your principle, then God has the fullness of pleasures in the beatific vision. So you take that principle and you just work against them with it. You just push hard with it and say, okay, if, if you if you really, really, really are seeking pleasure, well, that that is something which is good within that, within that corruption that you have. That itself isn't bad, although you're seeking it illicitly. Here is what is licit and what is even greater than you could ever imagine. Because sexual pleasure, especially homosexual pleasure, is not it's not something which is the, the fullness of pleasure. That, 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 that just isn't it. You're seeking a lesser good. That is what you're doing. So it intuitively, especially with moral issues, if we are going to take seriously the fact that our view of sin is the choosing of the lesser good, then we show them the greater good that they are not choosing. That is what we show them. And show and show them the greater good. I don't. I don't get why that is inherently problematic. To when you when when you're talking with somebody with a moral issue, you show them the greater good that they're missing out on by choosing the lesser good, and then you show their inconsistency there, and then you invite them into the greater good. And there's there's even dominical example of this. Read our Lord in John four in this light. He has the woman at the well. And she is seeking lesser goods. She is seeking all of those husbands that she had, all the men in her life. She's seeking physical water. And she's seeking all these things. And then our Lord is saying, no, those are lesser goods that you're seeking. 
you need to consistently, in seeking goodness, seek the greater good. Seek, and I don't mean the greater good as like more mo, mo greater good utilitarianism. No, I mean the greater good um, in an ontological sense. Goodness, ipsum esse subsistence, good subsisting in itself, that is God. Seek the beatific vision as the as the end of man, the beatific vision. And since we know that in the Catholic faith, and this is where you need to be a Catholic chauvinist, and I, I, I really despise. I've seen people uh, try to try to like toss the bone to uh, to atheists, and and it's just ugh, I, I hate it. But since we know we have all truth, all goodness, all beauty, all authority and power subsisting in the Catholic Church, we know that it is utterly irresistible when it is presented in its full glory, in its full goodness, in its full truth, that really just the mere presentation of it consistently against the, uh, the ways of heretics and the ways of the world that it fulfills the end of man. So if presented correctly, then it will inevitably destroy any notion they have. Unless, and what frequently happens, there is the issue of the wickedness of the heart, which, reject, which rejects it. The heart which is not softened and drawn and changed by grace. But at that point... It's not your fault. <laughs> There's nothing more you can do. You present it. We, we have to recognize that when we do uh, apologetics or have any sort of polemical discussion where we know we have the fullness of truth as the Catholic faith, we know we have the truth. We know that the king of our church is truth itself and that all authority and power has been given unto us. We know that when we present that, if there's a rejection of that, well, there's really nothing more we can do because it its conversion itself is a supernatural act. There were people that tried to work on me, myself, um, for a year and a half. And it was through the instrumentality of one of St. John Henry Newman's works, where he showed this inconsistency, that my conversion happened. Many people probably did it before. So I guess that is about all I had. In my thoughts. Sodomy is a disorder, which that is why they arrive at their erroneous perceptions. Exactly. Exactly. There's a certain disorder of the will where they're seeking um, certain things after a false, wrong, ugly, and bad manner. That's what they're doing. Let me see. Yes, Summa Contra Gentiles is amazing. Okay, I referred to the infallible definition of scriptural text, though even in definitive decisions by popes, I remember you affirming that the reason under the statements are fallible. Why? Okay. Now, this this is where a distinction needs to be made. I need this I need to subdistinguish the minor premise. 
need to contradistinguish the major premise and provide a super sub subdistinguish under that. So, by by using scriptural scripture authoritatively, I meant the uh, scripture as the matter of the form that is dogma. So you're assuming by by using scripture infallibly, I mean inevitably exegeting scripture infallibly. That's not what I mean. I mean preaching the truths which are presented in scripture infallibly. But yes, the reasons under the statement are fallible, correct. It's only the statement which is made in a certain um, magisterial statement that is binding. It's not any of the reasons given. The reasons given could just be wrong. And the other Paul talks about Ed Cathedra statements. Yes, that's a, that's a, applied in every single um, magisterial document, including ecumenical councils. Okay, uh, if you guys have any questions, I can stick around for another minute. I feel like I saw something else important. That was a very good stream. Thank you, Christian. Great show, bro. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you guys enjoyed that. So, remember everybody, become a patron so I can uh, buy another volume of this baby. Or this. One of Aristotle's commentaries. Or a biblical commentary. Or maybe I'll just buy a second sumo. Who knows? So, patreon.com slash militantthomas. If you want me to quit my job, because I, I'm telling you guys, it's this close. It's this close. It's so close. So you just go there, patreon.com slash militant Thomas. Just a few of you. Just a few of you. And it'll it'll just get me this much closer because I'm so close. And if you want something out of it, then just go to ChristianBWagner.com slash shop. And if and get a book. But if you, you let's say you you don't want a book, I want something else. Okay, okay. Get a mug. Let's say, look, books, I'm not a nerd. Mugs, I don't drink coffee. Patreon, I don't like you that much. I want something out of it. Well, okay. Okay. FluentGreekNT.com, the best way to learn Greek. No, Nobody can hate learning Greek. If If you hate learning Greek, and you think Greek is worthless, then you're probably a demon, and I don't want you giving me money anyways. It was probably through, like, blood cults or something. So any of those three options, that would be wonderful. And then also, uh, I recently did an article. I probably should post in my description of those other ways you can help me because there's plenty of other ways you can help me that don't require that, even including uh, clicking. <laughs> I won't even talk about that. But just, just go to the website. There should be an article on ways to help me. Okay. Okay, what books do you sell? Um, there's like eight of them. Let me see. I probably have a few of them around here. Um, Outlines of Dogmatic Theology. Wonderful text. Wonderful text. 
Um, Essay on the Brethren of Our Lord. That's from a Protestant author about perpetual virginity. Dissertation on the Death of Christ by John Davenant, Bishop John Davenant. Um, he's another Protestant author who uh, wrote against uh, limited atonement as a uh, as uh, somebody who was at the Synod of Thor. So it's very interesting. Um, manual of Catholic Apologetics this is going to just kind of give you the backbone of a manual. Uh, dialogue on the existence of God. This is really good if you uh, if you want to talk to atheists. Use this kind of um, and all of the stupid objections that get made. Uh, he's really good. Um, I th- oh, this is this is uh, ironically this is uh, this is one of, I think one of the best books that I reprint, but uh, it's one of the the least. Um, bought books that I've reprinted. So it's interesting. But Aristotle in the Church by Brother Azarius. Aristotle in the Church by Brother Azarius. It's really good. Um, it talks about the rise of Aristotelianism and its reception in the Church, how Thomas Aquinas was almost um, condemned as a heretic. It's a, it's a really good. Hello, fellow humans. Isn't Greek a horrible language? So annoying, right? <laughs> Okay, I will see you guys tomorrow. And I might be on VC tonight, so make sure you join the Discord. Um, Yeah, and that's all. So, goodbye.